I want to talk with you about repentance this morning, turning around and going back the other way. I've talked about this subject before. Some of the, th- some of the same scriptures we'll use, same ideas we'll use again, but I think it's, it's the critical issue that's so often overlooked because a lot of people are willing to be baptized, but they won't repent. They keep living the same way they did before they were baptized. Uh, a lot of other people, repentance or whatever, is just simply not in their thought process or vocabulary. There's always a way to justify yourself and go on. Never let them see you sweat, you know, is an old saying, and that's kind of where we are. But this subject really goes back to what we talked about last week, about having a stony heart. You remember this if you were here. Having a heart of stone that is impenetrable. And uh, we talked about that whole situation of having a heart of stone and what the Bible says about that. And, and we even went here to the book of Hebrews where I want to begin this morning, kind of in a running start at our subject. In Hebrews 3, verse 7, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. By the way, that's really important. This is recorded by Moses. And who does he, And also David. Who does he say says this? The Holy Spirit. Today, and so those who say, well, the Holy Spirit and the Word are different from each other. We'll come back to that this morning, a little bit later. I think they're making a tragic error, an unfortunate error. When I read in the Scriptures what the Scripture says, I'm reading the whole, I'm taking advantage of the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit when I read, understand, and begin to apply what the Word says to me in That's the Holy Spirit working on me. So it isn't the Word or the Bible or the Holy Spirit, as some people in religion today believe. It's the same thing. Today, if you will hear His voice, He says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Of course, that rock on the first slide was where, uh, because the heart is a heart, Moses struck the rock to bring forth water because they were in rebellion against God. He says, Don't try me like that, but today, if you'll hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. Therefore, God says in Hebrews 3, this is recounting what happened before, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore to my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Another... Side point, scripture's full of these things. You know, some people say, well, now, if you're a Christian, you can never go astray. If you're a Christian or a believer, you can never be lost. So once you're saved, you're always saved. Notice in verse 12 who he calls these people. He calls them brethren, I would presume, in Christ. And he says, be careful because you can depart from the living God. And you can have a heart of unbelief even if you're called a brother. Or you are a Christian. He says instead of departing. And have an evil heart of unbelief. Not willing to listen to God. Exhort one another daily. While it is called today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold the beginning of our confidence. Steadfast to the end. While it is, while it is said today. If you will hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts. As in the rebellion. A couple different words will describe this. We didn't really go into this much last week. There, there are similar concepts in the Bible. A hard heart is one. And then there is being stiff-necked. 
he, this is a King James phrase, you stiff-necked people. Jesus used it, the prophets used it. And I think what that means is, when, you know, when you want to hear somebody, especially when you're half-deaf like me, you, you lean in, you know. You lean into them. When I'm judging showmanship, state fair or somewhere, I've got to deal with these young people come up before me, and I'm the judge, and they gotta, I've got to ask them questions. They've got to talk to me and all that stuff. And so here, and I feel bad about this, so here's some uh, 10, 11-year-old girl. She's there, and she's afraid of this old man with a beard and a coat, you know, medical jacket on and blade, with blade, uh, emblems on it. And I'm the judge, and so she's talking real low. And so what am I doing? Well, well I'm, I'm kind of getting closer and leaning in, you know. And I finally tell them now. I said, look, young lady, I said, unless you want this creepy old man getting real close to you, you're going to have to stand up, speak up loud, and look me in the eye. Or I'm going to have to lean in real close to you. You don't want that, do you? No. Okay. <laughs> then speak up. I'm judging. So, but I'm trying to hear. And so I'm, I'm bending my neck. I'm bending my ear. I'm bending my neck to hear them. A stiff-necked person will not change his posture to listen to God or anybody else, probably, for that matter. He doesn't care if he hears or not. He's going to do what he wants to do. But one who is without this stony heart will bend and listen to what God says. Listen closer. Read it again. Try to figure it out because he wants to know, wants to hear. So that's another phrase, being stiff-necked. And he says... Do not harden your heart against God's word, what I said. Now, now the only answer to this heart of stone that we saw last week is repentance. Now, this is a big subject, of course, and you can break it down. You could say, well, there's other answers, too, you know, like a change of life, which is repentance, what repentance is, or walking in, in the spirit, which repentance involves. But it comes back to a person with a heart of stone having a change of mind. One of the things I want to show you in subtle ways today is that this process of either having a a hardened heart or having a a heart that repents is not one that's been predetermined by God before the foundation of the world. It's not one which is controlled, controlled completely by the miraculous action of the Holy Spirit. I know Ezekiel 37 and another reference, I think in chapter 11 of Ezekiel, talks about God giving the children of Israel Instead of a heart of stone, a heart of flesh, and he would put a new heart in them. But when you look at the context of those passages, it's talking about the fact that what's going to happen there by God's encouragement is they're going to be willing to obey him. Not a magical transformation against their will or out of nowhere to them, but they're going to start listening to what God says and start doing it. And that generation wouldn't do it, but the next one would. We talked about that last week. Generations are different from each other. I think that we've had some hard-hearted generations in my lifetime, but the ones that we're facing now that are young are very hard-hearted toward God and for, toward correction. I could be wrong about that. I'm hopeful that perhaps what I'm seeing in very young people is more a disillusionment with their half-hearted parents and the parents who are selfish and don't really care about them, and so they don't have any direction. What kind of direction do you think... Uh, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old kids are getting today from most people in the United States. Are they getting good direction? Are they cared about? Or are the parents focusing on how they feel about life and what's happening to them and and what's going on with the uh, Real Housewives of Atlanta or something like that? And so this this new generation is, is somewhat alone. I don't mean to be critical of them in a harsh way. 
they're somewhat having to raise themselves and they're somewhat alone. They're, they're not being given values that mean, make any difference to them. They've been told, decide whatever you want. It's up to you to decide. And so the young people have no direction. It doesn't surprise me. And I'm hoping that as time goes by, many of these people, many of these young people will grow and they will realize they need some direction from a better source than their parents. They need some, they need some direction from God. And, and that's, a, that's the hope of evangelists in the future that that's going to be the case. But the only answer to a heart of stone, whether it's you or a whole country, a whole generation, is repentance, turning around. You know, C.S. Lewis says when you're lost, there's only one way to fix that problem. You don't keep going forward hoping to find the right way. You turn around and go back to where you know, and then you start from there again. And that's what repentance is. Uh, we could go to, I mean, there's so many verses about this in the New Testament, I really hardly know where to start. Let's just start here at a familiar one in Acts 17, where Paul's speaking to the Gentiles there, the Greeks on Mars Hill in the city of Athens. He concludes what he's saying. Truly, these times of ignorance are talking about the Gentiles walking their own way and doing whatever they wanted to do. That God, God overlooked these times of ignorance. But now, in this present age of Christ, now commands all men everywhere to repent. So there's two key words we saw already today. One of them is today. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, here's one. Now. That sounds like today, doesn't it? But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. It doesn't say he commands the elect to repent, only those who have already been predestined to be saved. He calls on all men everywhere, Jew and Gentile, slave or free, to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard that, many of the scholars there, philosophers, scoffed and wouldn't listen to Paul any further when they heard about a resurrection of the dead because they didn't believe in resurrections. But Paul here was telling you something. The resurrection of the dead... That God, when God raised Christ up, we know in 1 Corinthians 15, it stands for the fact that that's a symbol of our resurrection. That's a hope of us being raised in the same manner who were in Christ. It's a sign of life. But the resurrection is also proof of the judgment of God. Now what he says here? He's given assurance and shown you that he's going to judge the world by this one he's raised up from the dead. Now, that was to cause you to do what? What is this statement trying to prod you to do? To repent. Okay. All men should repent because there is a day coming in which God will judge the world. There it is again. That politically incorrect Bible going at it again. Talking about a judgment day. The people are sinners. And there's the problem. One of the tenets of our entire culture and society for a hundred years is that sin isn't really a thing. It really doesn't exist. It's a figment of religious uh, fanatics' imaginations. As I mentioned before, you, you go talk to... If any psychologist you ever go to who's certified by any of the organizations in our country and around the world for the mo- in English-speaking countries, if they ever mention the word sin, they're going to have their license taken away from them. They can never tell you the reason you're having this problem is because you've sinned against God. You need to repent. They can never say something like that. Sin has been banished from our society. It's a syndrome that you have. You have a syndrome, not sin. So you can usually look at whatever is wrong with a person, come up with a three, 
you know, something you can abbreviate in three letters, ADD or HDD or whatever it may be, and I'm just picking on that one just because it came to my mind. <clears throat> and that's your problem. God says the problem is sin. And the answer to sin, the only way you can start is to repent. Now then, you have this reading in Acts chapter 2. Tells us a few more things. There's so many others. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He had already shown them the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. If, if the falling of the Holy Spirit was enough to save them, they would have already been saved because the Holy Spirit fell there on that day. I don't know if it felt, you can say it fell on all these people, but the Spirit's presence was there. But it, the, presence, the miraculous presence of the Spirit was there just to certify and to uh, notarize, as it were, what Peter and the apostles were saying. And the message they had for those people is, they didn't say, don't, just sit back and pray that the Holy Spirit falls on you and you'll be saved. The message they had was, you repent. It's something that you can do. You can repent. And do what God wants you to do. And then you can be saved, be, be baptized and be saved. Now, what is this repentance? Maybe I've gotten ahead of myself. We went over this before, but let me just show you. In English, the word repent, it's a word we just don't use. Think of any place else in your day, day-to-day life that you use the word repent. Can you think of any? It, you just don't, we just don't use this word. As I've said, it's fallen out of favor even in casual social usage much less in any other kind of serious usage because there's no need to repent if you're not really a sinner. But it means in English, re means again, like repeat, and then pentare or pent to think. So it means to think again. So you're thinking this way, and then you have a a think about it, you know? And you think about it, and now you think again. You think something different this time. You have a rethink, and that's what that means in, in, in uh, common Latin. And then in Greek, the one that's here in the Bible, the words that's used. Now, I'm not talking, I'm talking about repent, repentance, repented. You know, all the various forms of the word all have the same basic meaning. In Greek, it's meta, which means after or again, and then noio, which is to think. So it means, metanoio is the basic word, and it means to think again or to reconsider. We would say in English, reconsider something. You see that? And so here you've been doing one thing one way or thinking this, and then you think, well, maybe it's that. I had to rethink about something yesterday. Uh, My lawnmower is not cutting right. It's cutting all uneven. And I'm, uh, you know, figuring out it keeps going one way or another, and I'm struggling with figuring out. I've done all kind of stuff. And so uh, anyway, frustrations galore. and, And I finally decided... I think I know what it is. I rethought it. Rethought the whole thing. Now, based on what I'm seeing, I think I've got a bent spindle, or the deck is bent. It isn't the blades. The blades are fine. The whole deck. Whoever cuts my lawn must have hit something. And I think I hit a coconut. Believe it or not, coconuts can do a lot of damage. You get one of those up underneath your riding lawnmower, it'll jam everything up. If it doesn't chop it in little bits, it'll jam everything up and probably bent something. 
So now I gotta take the deck off tomorrow and beat it with a sledgehammer. That's the first thing you do with most fog. If you think about it for a while, just get out the sledgehammer, you're on your way to fixing it. But I, I had to rethink all this because what I was thinking wasn't working. And it's obvious what I was doing wasn't right, it wasn't fixing the problem. So you gotta come to the conclusion that you rethink what you've been doing in relation to what's right or wrong or God or other people, and you realize what I'm doing is not right or it's not working. And so uh, one way, we can't spend much time on any of these points. We probably should spend a lot of time on each of these points. Repentance is really uh, looking at something with another thought from another point of view. Sometimes what repentance, what causes repentance, which we'll deal with in just a moment more, is you think about what you've done from the standpoint of the person that you're affected. So somebody gets angry with you, or they're hurt. And instead of saying, well, that's their problem. Not my fault, they're sensitive. And maybe they are too sensitive. We're not even dealing with that. But then perhaps a thought comes through your mind, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe I need to see this from, the stand, from their standpoint. And something, now this is where providence of God can help, or you being observant. You can, you can see and learn things that help you see what you did to the other person. Just what you did to the other person. I like to think this. When I was a kid, I, you know, I, t I told you I was handicapped, braces, and, and walking around there, and a little scrawny kid. And, and a couple of the older kids would used to pick on me. Cut them down the end of the street. Used to pick on me all the time when they got a chance, especially at the bus stop. They'd come up and smack me, knock me down, bloody my nose, had to get on the bus with a bloody nose, and things like that happened. Or they would shove me around, make fun of me, and all this. Now, now these people, these guys are a year or two older than me. They've grown up. They're, they're on Facebook. And I see people saying a lot of nice things about these people this time. I'm going, well, that wasn't my impression of this guy. When he was 13, 14 years old, he was a bully. Not just one that said something about it, but one that physically tried to intimidate and always did it. Wasn't one, it was con and it wasn't because he was my friend and we were just calling each other names. He was trying to humiliate and hurt me. And he did a good job of it. And I wonder now that he's 70 years old. I wonder if he's had a rethink about that. You think? I'd maybe Jason's shaking his head no. I'd, I'd like to think he has. But you deal with the, <laughs> uh, yeah. Can the leopard change his spots? Generally speaking, they don't. The Bible says that. But somewhere along the line, you know what can happen to this guy? I'm, I'm making up. I'm gonna make this up. I'm making this up to make myself feel better. Maybe he was born. One of his children was born with a handicap. You think God could arrange that? One of his kids was born with a handicap, and he has to. He has to think. You know, I guess I used to be Eddie Haskell from. And I picked on the deed all the time. But maybe this wasn't such a good idea. I know some of you old people don't even know what I'm talking about right now. But if you'll look up Leave it to Beaver on YouTube, you'll find lots of interesting little stories. And you'll find out who Eddie Haskell is. Eddie Haskell grew up to be Bill Clinton, I think, from what I can tell. <clears throat> well, he was always, always such a charming gentleman to Mr. and Mrs. Cleaver, but he was kind of devious to the rest of the people. So he... Well, I didn't inhale, wink, wink, and everybody knew. I thought, that's Eddie Haskell. That's what I thought when I saw it. 
That was many years ago. Sorry for the political commentary, but there's people like that everywhere of all political parties and groups that, that, that are always uh, trying to get one over everybody. Maybe he had to rethink about it. Something happened in his life and caused him to look at something from another point of view. Look at it from the point of view of the person who's being hurt. A lot of people now, they're my age, oh, they were once strong and they could bully people and push them around and they would think people uh, who couldn't run and couldn't play football, well, I'm superior to them. And I mean, a lot of those people, the athletes in our school, they were superior to everybody because they were an athlete. And we gave them honor and praise, lifted them up as little demigods and put them on a pedestal because they were strong and could run and jump. Yeah. Now some of those guys are as old as me and their lifestyles let them down and they're, they're sitting around in a wheelchair with oxygen on, tubes on, wheezing and coughing and can't get around. They've had a stroke. They can barely get through Walmart without a cart. I wonder if they had to rethink about how important physical things are compared to the soul and the spirit. You think they've had to rethink about that? Some have. And they regret, regret it. Others do not care. It's to look at yourself again and say, hmm, I thought I'd look this way, but maybe I better look again. I do that sometimes. Stand back from the mirror. You know, eh, okay. And then if I lean in a little closer, I go, ooh, let me get the scissors. Cut off some of that stuff growing out of my ears and my nose and stuff. It's to look at yourself again and see. Looking at yourself from God's and your neighbor's point of view. What's God think of the way I'm conducting my life around other people? Am I loving my neighbor as myself or am I just living loving myself and so forth? And, and then the three elements of it are at least these three are very important. I got these from Dr. Laura, which they're right. Res take res you have to take responsibility for what you've done and say, I did that. I own up to it. This is my fault. I did it. And that's then to, to display and or to feel regret that you did it. That's feeling. And then to repair what you have done as best you can. Those are three important elements of any kind of serious repentance that must be taken into account. And I believe if we took the time that we're going to show you from the Bible exactly, and we'll do some of that, but not under those headings, exactly that kind of process that goes on. Without all three, it's incomplete. Now, I realize that sometimes you've committed sins, and I've committed sins, for which there is no way to go back and repair what I did. Because the people involved either aren't there anymore, I have no way of getting ahead of, uh, beyond them, or they won't let me repair it. They're just impossible to talk to, so they have a hard heart themselves, and they, can't, they won't let me repair, repair it. And then I just have to re realize I made the attempt to repair it. And then there's a the problem of cheap grace. I call it cheap grace. And they ask the idea of, well, you know, they didn't really mean it. The person comes up and says they're sorry, and so I have to forgive them all for whatever they've done. I've told you the story about the woman at church, family at church where I first preached years ago. Uh, they were always coming forward every few months and saying, I've sinned, please forgive me. I haven't been living as a Christian. They'd say this to me on the front row. Oh, okay. Then we'd pray, and everybody hug them and go back. And I come to find out over a course of time that the, this family was known in the neighborhood where they lived as being a family. They took up a petition, their neighbors did, to get them to move away. They were causing so much problem. The police were always at their house. 
There was always drunken fights at their house between the husband and wife. They were beating the kids. The kids were stealing everything in the neighborhood around them, beating up all the other little kids, and everything's going on. And yet they're coming to church on Sunday morning and sitting in the front, front row and, and uh, doing the Lord's Supper, and he's a leader in the church. Anybody know, ever seen anything like this before? Well, this was pretty bad. Because it turns out that, that one day the woman comes forward and says, well, we haven't seen her for a few weeks on Sunday. And husband is making some excuse. And she says, well, I, I, I've not been living as I should. Need you forgive me? Well, I, let me pray. I come to find out the reason she wasn't at church, she had been shopping in Kmart with one of the other sisters and been arrested for shoplifting in front of the other sister at church, had to spend six weeks in jail every weekend as her punishment. That's why she wasn't at church. So guess what Mike did? Mike, Mike just said, we're going to tell everybody this. I'm going to tell everybody this. This can't go on. It's not a one-shot deal. This is a way of living. And so if you're going to say that you're wrong about something, you have to own up to what it is. And you have to show some understanding of what it is. And cheap grace in a church just says somebody can come forward and say, well, I'm sorry, I haven't been living right. And we all just pat them on the back and forget about it. Now, I don't know all the answers in this regard. But many churches and lives have been destroyed, and many people are going to be lost in hell because of that kind of cheap grace. Where you say, well, he said he was sorry, so I can't say anything about it. I had the same thing happen with child molesters in the church. Well, he said he was sorry. What do you want to do now? Well, i got some ideas. But, but demanding that I, saying that I'm the one that's wrong because I want him held accountable is not one of them. Cheap grace. That's not God's grace. God grants forgiveness when you repent. And that involves more than saying, I'm sorry you were offended. Uh, repentance, I don't know if we covered all those, but it doesn't matter. It, repentance is not sorrow or grief. There's a lot of reasons for sorrow or grief. And, and repentance may be part of that. It may be the first step to repentance. Or it might not. We'll see a verse in a moment if we have time. Uh, <laughs> repentance is not the consequence of an action. Well, he repented. He went to, he went to jail, so he must be repentant really well they call it a penitentiary don't they i'm kind of being facetious accepting your punishment for doing something is not the same as repentance i've accepted punishment for things i did not do and that i was not guilty of because that was i didn't have much choice because my dad was administering the punishment but that didn't mean i repented of it I've had to face consequences as a preacher for things I've said. And I don't take back what I said. I just have to accept the consequence of that, a punishment for that. But I'm not sorry I said it because it was correct and right. I've thought about whether I should, but nope. Remorse or regret is not it. We'll see that in a moment. And, and making an apology or doing some amends is not necessarily repentance on your part. It just may be your attempt to avoid any more consequences. A lot of the apologies you see given by politicians and athletes and movie stars and whatnot are just an attempt to avoid further punishment. They're not, they're not really sorry about that. They just, don't want you, they just want you to get you off their case for a while and feel good about it for a moment. But there's no sorrow because they're going to do the same thing again. So here's fake repentance. I saw this somewhere. Fake repentance, there's no change. That's the big one right there. There's no change shown. There's no remorse. You, you tend to justify your error. You repeat your error, and yet you say you're sorry. 
You look for others to side with you in your error against the person who's accusing you. That's not repentance. And you blame the one you hurt. That's all. Those are all signs of fake repentance. I love this one. I can put this in both of them some years ago. It's a note from a kid. Chris, I am sorry because mom says I am. <laughs> now, this is a po- this person, Jenny, is going to grow up to be a politician or a movie star. This is the apology that you hear from politicians, movie stars, and, and athletes all the time, isn't it? I am, so, I am sorry because mom says I am. I did not think I was sorry, but I guess I am. You ever heard that kind of apology before? Yeah, it's the kid. But children are just like adults or adults are just like children. They're, adults are just more sophisticated. They, they phrase it more sophisticated. But they want you to say, okay, well, everything's fine then. No. I, I don't know if this one even applies, but I found it when I was digging out the other one. Can you see it there? If something I said can be uh, interpreted in two ways, and one of those ways upsets you, then I meant the other one. <laughs> now, I understand the predicament of this husband because his wife probably didn't even tell him what he had done that was wrong. She probably still hasn't told him. He was supposed to guess because if you love me, you would know. And so he doesn't know what to do. And, and it, that's, a legitimate, that's a legitimate emotion to say, I'm sorry you're upset because I don't want to be. When, when Judy cries... The only thing I can think is, i got to stop her somehow. i got to stop this somehow. So I'm liable to say anything to get her to stop crying. Luckily, she doesn't cry very much. She's hard-hearted. But boy, I know when she does, I know when she does cry, I really messed up and probably been messing up for a long time and didn't even know it. But you know, saying, I want you to stop crying, does that mean you're sorry? Of course it doesn't. All that's still got to come out. If you're honest with each other, then it will come out. And then you can decide if you're sorry or not. So, but repentance is doing something about your sin. In Luke we, here in 3, this is where John the Baptist confronts these soldiers. And he tells them to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. And so they say, what is that? And, you know, be content with your wages and don't, don't bribe anybody and so forth and so on. He tells them things that they can do to show that they've repented. They were concerned. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They said, well, I can hear the conversation. It's not recorded all there, but what does this mean? What am I supposed to do? And so he tells them. It's doing something about what you know is wrong. First, you have to recognize you've done wrong. Now then you say, what am I going to do about that? It's viewing myself as God views me, not as I see myself. So the scribes and Pharisees thought they were fine. God said they were a brood of vipers. Why did sepulchers? Are you seeing yourself as God sees you? Maybe you are. Now, I'm not asking anybody to be harder on themselves than what's the truth. The truth will set you free. Sometimes you can look at your life and specifically think and say, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. And you have to live with that. Sometimes there's consequences for that, but sometimes you have to live with that. The truth is the truth. Not everybody, I'm not asking everybody to beat yourself up all the time. That's not the point. But when you're getting consequences for what you do, and when you hurt people, you need to at least find out what you did and how you can do something about that rather than just dismiss it. I went backwards, didn't I? It's viewing myself as God sees me. And it's viewing myself as you see me. 
you can look up these scriptures here. We don't have time this morning to look at them. I'll put them up here for you so you can look at them. Matthew 7, 12. Sometimes it takes seeing ourselves in the eyes of our neighbor. You know, that's a true friend. A true friend, well, sometimes not a, they aren't really friends. Sometimes people that hate you. I, you know who can give you the best, most honest evaluation of your behavior? It's people that don't like you. Um, not everything they say will be accurate, but some of the stuff that they will say about you is accurate. And your friends won't tell you, or your friends don't see it. They overlook it. But your enemies won't overlook it. They will tell you. So you keep hearing the same thing about people that don't like you. The same thing. Maybe you need to pay attention there. There's something there. There's something there. And that needs to be taken into account. But seeing myself as you see me, and then it's thinking in one direction, going this way, and then turning and going the other way. Now, here's another difference. We need to read this quickly. Here's Paul's interaction with the Corinthians. You know, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he had really, really condemned the Corinthians for them having a fornicator in their midst and being proud of it because he was an important member of the church and they were defending this fornicator. I think he was an incestuous man. And, and they were defending him and they were puffed up, he says, about it. Well, Paul really confronted them about that in the first book of 1 Corinthians and uh, told them to repent. Now, time goes by. And apparently, apparently they got so, they turned around on this and they became extremely harsh with this man far beyond what Paul thought. Apparently this man repented. He did repent. And they became harsh with him in spite of his repentance. And so Paul deals with that problem in the second book of, of Corinthians. And he says, Sir, even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. So you know what? You can say things to somebody that hurt their feelings and you don't have to regret it. You know that? It's okay if you say something to me that hurts my feelings. You don't have to necessarily be upset about that. Now, if you do it as a Christian or not in a slanderous or insulting way, but you can hurt my feelings. I can hurt your feelings and you don't have to regret it. It's possible. But we tend as modern people to focus on the fact that we hurt somebody else's feelings, not on what's behind that, not on the big issue, the real issue behind that. He says, I did regret it, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though for only for a while. So I know you were sorry, but now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Paul separates forever sorrow or feeling bad about something and repentance. He separates those two things right here. They're not the same thing at all. And one might be related, but it's not the same thing. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. So your sorrow just wasn't a sorrow of the world, he says. But godly sorrow produces what? Repentance. It isn't the same as repentance. It produces repentance. So sometimes being made to feel sorry for what you've done can lead you to repent, leading to salvation and so forth. Now, we, we can verse 11 is a whole series of sermons on its own, which we won't deal with right now. You know, this is the message of the kingdom, though. <clears throat> repent, John says. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus basically came and said the same thing. This is it. This is what the kingdom message was about from the beginning. We have this scripture that I want to talk about just for a moment about repentance. It kind of illustrates repentance a little bit. It's misunderstood, but it's still, I think, important. And Jesus says in Luke 11 that the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed greater than Jonah is here. So he said, I'm greater than Jonah, and the people of Nineveh, even when they heard Jonah, they repented at his preaching. What does that mean, at his preaching? Well, literally, I don't know if it's showing up here, repent at means to turn around, repent towards something. So here, here's Jonah's preaching saying, you need to be doing this. This is righteousness. They were going the other way, away from that preaching. They heard the preaching, and they turned around and went back at the preaching, the truth. And so that's the way a lot of us are. We're moving away from what the Bible teaches us to do and to be and to believe, and we need to repent at that preaching or teaching from God. Turn around. That's the same idea. To rethink again what we're doing. And that's why John said to them in Luke, Luke uh, 3, verse 8, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And that's why they said, well, what should we do then? And he said, he who has two tunics, let him give them. Him who has none, he who has food, let him do likewise. The taskmasters came to be baptized. And they said, teacher, what shall we do? Not, we're waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall so we'll be saved. We won't have to, won't have to do anything on our own. God's going to do it all for us. That's the common teaching. God will do all this for us. No, what shall we do? And he told them. Here's a, I know time is gone, but I want to mention this too. Here's a, ver, here's a scripture that causes a lot of confusion because I don't think it's read carefully. In Luke 17, he says, If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turns to you and says, I repent, you shall forgive him. This verse isn't about how many times in a day you can sin and repent. I don't even think it's possible to repent seven times in a day. But it is possible for you to forgive if someone asks you to forgive. This is talking about your willingness to forgive, not how many times you can repent in a day. If repent means change your mind and turn, this person is pretty confused seven times in a day. Jesus used that for an illustration in this case. Now, we don't have time to consider the next few verses that I have on here about the rich man, but I will say this. You know that story in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man uh, kept everything to himself, only let Lazarus have some crumbs that fell from the stable. You know what's interesting to me? Here this man lifts up his eyes in torment. He says, Father Abraham, you see that guy Lazarus? Send Lazarus over here to torment for me into in fire. Send him over and let me, give me some water. Do you think he learned, has learned anything yet? That's why Abraham's very clear. Oh, no. You had whatever you wanted to, and you treated Lazarus poorly. Now Lazarus is being comforted. You're staying where you are, and he's staying where he is. He still thought of Lazarus the same way he did before, as his servant or beneath him, that he should serve him. No repentance, even in darkness. Even in, even in darkness, no repentance. Now, uh, sorry here, I, I got made a note to myself where I'm supposed to skip to. And naturally, <clears throat> I can't see it. Uh, let's, con let's conclude this with a couple of scriptures. In Romans chapters 1 and 2, there's a condemnation of every person in the ancient world or every group of people in the ancient world. Not every person, but every group. In chapter 1, God thoroughly condemns the Gentiles for their wickedness, that they had left God. The same ones that Paul in Acts 17 told to repent and not to face the judgment of God. 
And in chapter 2, he turns his attention to the Jews who were standing on the side applauding because he had condemned the Gentiles, and they thought this was great, but we're, we're God's children. We're so much better. God says no. We know the judgment of God, Romans 2, verse 2, is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, who judge those who practice such things and are doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God. He said, whatever sins the Gentiles are committing, you're doing in your own Jewish way. You've done the same things in your own Jewish way. They did it in the Gentile way. Or do you despise? Can members of the Church of Christ be ignorant? I mean, be, well, maybe. Be envy. That's the wrong word. Sorry, that, is that a Freudian slip? Are we allowed to mention Freud in the pulpit? Can they be envious? Oh, look at those movie stars. They're all filled with envy. I see just as much envy in local churches as I have in movie stars. It just looks a little different. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of the righteous revelation of God? I don't know what I just did. I think I killed it all, didn't I? And no one even bothered to tell me, you don't even love me. Here you go. You're treasuring up wrath with an impenitent heart. You're just hoping sermon was over. But Why about what Second Peter says? The Lord's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward all, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I don't think he means all the elect here. He means all, everybody, should come to repentance. That's what he wants for you. That's what he wants for your neighbor. That's what he wants for every Muslim in the world. That they would come for rep- to repentance, you see. And then there's this verse, which I have read many times trying to be a preacher. It's still beyond me sometimes. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Be able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance that they might know the truth, that he might come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, have been taken captive to him to do his will. So there's God's, he's praying that God would help people come to their senses to escape the devil. This isn't some magical thing that happens. The granting of repentance is something that happens in their heart, a change that takes place. And truly God overlooked in the past these sins. But now... He issues the same command that I can this morning by God's authority issue to you. He commands all men everywhere to repent. And that means you, Christian, need to look at your life and repent of the way you've been going. If you, if you haven't made those changes, make them now and keep on that course. If you are not a Christian, you need to repent and turn to the Lord to save you. Now, now the Christian has advantages over you if you're not a Christian. If you've never been uh, repented and been baptized for your sins, you don't have this advantage. You don't have Christ on your side with you to help you overcome the sin. You don't have the gift of the Holy Spirit to help you overcome. But once you become a Christian, you have the help there. You, you don't have a whole family of believers to encourage and help you, a whole family of brethren to encourage you like, if you're not in Christ. And so we urge you this morning as we close our sermon to think about that. If we can baptize you into Christ, today's the day. Stop living like you've been living and turn to the Lord. He'll show you what you need to do and what you can do. If, you're, if you are a Christian and you've wandered away, please make that change. Determine to end the time of your stony heart and come and let God change you. We're going to sing this song, number number 31. And if we can help you, come to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.